book of Revelation is a book about the end of the world. The first thing that we believe is going to happen, which is not fully revealed in the book of Revelation, but we see it elsewhere, we believe it ties in, is the rapture of the church. Before God sends down his judgment upon the world, we believe that God's church will be caught up, that's what rapture means, to be caught up or snatched up, into the air to be with the Lord, to be in heaven, while his wrath is poured out on the earth. Number two, after that happens, and there's some that don't believe it will, but number two, that Babylon will rise. There will be a worldwide empire that will take over the globe that is symbolically called Babylon in the book of Revelation. Number three is the ravage of God's people, that as this empire rises, the Jews and those that come to faith in Christ during this time will be intensely persecuted like never before. That is going to be drunk with the blood of the saints, the Bible says, of this empire. Persecution is going to be like never before. Number four is the ruin of the planet. That God himself is going to send terrible plagues from heaven to judge the world. And however you understand these things, whether explicitly supernatural or a mix of the two, or that it's just heightened language talking about physical things that are going to happen, we see that the water is going to be poisoned. We see that the grass is going to burn up. The trees are going to start to burn up. The sky is going to be blotted out in some way. The planet is going to start to be ruined. Number five is the revenge of the devil. This is a running theme through this book that Satan himself has been cast out of heaven, I believe presumably after the church has been raptured, and he's going to return to the earth and he is himself going to ramp up his plans to dominate the globe and to ruin everything. And it's, there's going to be a supernatural demonic aspect to this. There will in fact be chained demons that will be unleashed on the world during this time. Number six is the refuge of the faithful. In the middle of all that misery, the Bible says God is going to prepare a place in the wilderness for the children of Israel to flee to. And beyond that, he says, blessed are those who die in Christ during this time because they're going home to a wonderful reward. Number seven is the reorganization of the empire. Now, we've, we've talked about this. There's going to reach a point halfway through a, this seven-year period where a dictator is going to rise to take over this empire. Up till now, it's been a coalition of 10 different kings. Halfway through, one guy is going to stand up and say, now you can all follow me. He's called the Antichrist. In the epistles of John, he's symbolically called the beast in the book of Revelation. He will set up worship of himself. He will put down anybody that opposes him, and he will reign as the emperor of the world. And that leads us to the next one, which is the reign or the rule of the Antichrist. There's going to be another figure called the false prophet that will cause everybody to bow down and worship the image of the beast, take a mark on their hand or their head. And if you do not do that, you will be killed. You'll be unable to participate in the economy. It's going to be a, a literal cult of personality around this single figure. Number nine is the rot of the world. There's another stretch of Revelation that continues the plagues from before, but you see that these were not just isolated incidents. They're going to worsen. They're going to rot the world. All the water is going to be undrinkable. The grass is all going to be burned up. The, the sky is going to be with, burning with blazing heat on the world. Number 10, the rampage from Armageddon. That there's going to be a point towards the end where the Antichrist will gather all his armies at a place called Armageddon and they will march mostly on Jerusalem, but there seems to be other stops along the way. And one of those, it seems, number 11, is the rays of Babylon, the destruction 
of the city Babylon. And that is what we're going to focus on today. I know that's a lot. Hopefully that gives you enough to be caught up today. Go back and listen to the studies if you'd like to have more detail. Especially if you're one of those folks that thinks the Bible is kind of boring. Go read this book, friends. What we have here, there's a big debate over whether Revelation is linear, meaning it's going from one thing to the next thing, or if it's cyclical, like it's describing the same thing just like seven different ways. I think you have an unfolding linear narrative, but I do think it often gives you detours to discuss some important matters so that the next step in the chain makes sense. So what we've been building up to is the fall of Babylon. We even heard it explained and announced a few things, but... Up, up until about chapter 12 or 13, we had no idea what this meant. Babylon's going to fall. What are you talking about? Well, John and the angels that were speaking to John gave us a long rabbit trail, but it's an important rabbit trail, to describe what Babylon is. And we looked at chapter 12 and 13 with what we call the malignant trinity. Remember that? You've got Satan, the dragon, raising up the beast from the waters called the Antichrist and the beast from the earth with the two horns called the false prophet. These evil figures that are running the globe. We had the mark of the beast and the cult of the Antichrist. Going down to chapter 17, which is all about the great whore, the great harlot of Babylon. They compare the city of Babylon itself to a prostitute that seduces the whole world. And now that we understand what this empire is, not just that they're dominating the globe, not just that people are being persecuted or that there's plagues, but that there's this political and religious blending of forces, we can understand what it means when it says it is destroyed. And after reading all those chapters and hearing about the one world government and one world currency and getting heads chopped off, we're kind of excited to read about it being destroyed, aren't we? So let's read the first three verses of Revelation chapter 18. After this, after what? After that vision of the beast and the harlot from chapter 17. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of, her, of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Back in chapter 16, verse 19, it tells us that Babylon was destroyed when the seventh bowl judgment, remember that, was poured out on the earth. And then it took a little detour to explain to us what Babylon the city was. And the end of chapter 17 tells us that it is the beast himself, it is the Antichrist who will destroy the city of Babylon. So this is the context that we have so far. Babylon will be destroyed, the city now, not just the whole empire, but the city. And it will be the emperor of Babylon that will destroy it. So this chapter and the following one are going to contain the reactions from heaven and earth to the fall of that city. So if you're taking notes, you might want to you know, start making list one, two, three, four. Who is reacting to the fall of this city? There's a mighty angel, so bright he lights up the world. Isn't that cool? So people say, this can only be Jesus. Well, it doesn't say Jesus. It says it's an angel who announces, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Now, if you know your Bible real well, immediately you're going to recognize this phrase. 
Because Isaiah 21 verse 9 says the exact same thing in a prophecy about the empire of Babylon from the, the 500s BC, 400s BC. That fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. The reason I draw that out is because this passage draws on so much Old Testament language that it really is astonishing to look at passages from Isaiah, passages from Jeremiah, passages also from Ezekiel and elsewhere. I, I can't even read them all. My notes were just kind of really starting to stretch out here. But I'm going to be reading a lot of scripture today to demonstrate that this picture of the fall of Babylon is one that we've seen before in the Old Testament. It says that Babylon will be made desolate, fit for habitation only by demons and birds and wild animals, that no one is going to live there anymore. Jeremiah 51 verse 37, for example, says, Babylon shall become a heap of ruins, the haunt of jackals, a horror and a hissing without inhabitant. A horror and a hissing. Do you like that? You think of Babylon, you go, Right? What happened there? I don't want to talk about it. That was a great city, if you can believe it, right? That this language that is being used here in Revelation, that he's a haunt for every unclean animal, right? That comes right from Jeremiah 51. And the reason given for the fall of this great city is because it compares her to a harlot, to a prostitute, who seduced all the nations of the world. Specifically mentioning sexual immorality because of materialism. Why would all the nations go along with the sin of this city? Because there was money in it, y'all. Materialism, luxurious living. And that by drinking the cup, so to speak, by, by partying with Babylon, you got so drunk that you're going to fall. Very common image in the Bible that God's wrath is compared to a cup of wine that causes people to be drunk and stagger and fall. Jeremiah 51.7 says, Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand, making all the earth drunken. The nations drank of her wine, therefore the nations went mad. So why are we judging this city? Because in order to benefit from her economic wealth, the nations engaged in the false worship that Babylon led. So Babylon had this economic might that mastered the globe. But in order for anybody to participate and share in that trade, they had to engage in sexual immorality, which really is spiritual immorality, idolatry, spiritual prostitution. And we read these Old Testament passages and we say, well, that, that applied to Babylon as it existed back in the day. And you're right. But by using these passages, John, the writer, is inviting us to read those Old Testament passages beyond their immediate context to the last days. That what happened before to Babylon and to all the Babylons that came after, Persia, Greece, and so on, is going to happen again in its worst form in the last days. In short, the imperial city of the Great Tribulation, known for its luxury, known for its idolatry, will be destroyed as part of God's judgment by the hand of the Antichrist himself. And how this looks, like what, what the scenario will look like, which is some people's uh, favorite way to do Bible prophecy, is like, okay, I want to get all the information so we can start speculating and see how this might happen. Well, this really depends on how you identify each piece of the puzzle. Very common view is that chapter 17 with the, the harlot being struck down represents the religious aspect 
of Babylon, that the, the system of worship that she represents will end halfway through and be replaced by the worship of the Antichrist. That's a very common view. And that verse eight, or chapter 18 is about the actual physical destruction of the city itself. I think that's cutting it much too fine. The harlot from chapter 17 is clearly a city. Read verse 18. The woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion. That's, that's pretty neat, isn't it? Like you can't really get around that. And this chapter is clearly an expansion upon her destruction. That what she represents spiritually and economically will be destroyed. Armageddon is, among other things, a civil war. You got to remember that. That one of the Antichrist stops in Armageddon is going to be to crush his own capital city. And you kind of go, why would that happen? Well, there's lots of, of ideas here. I want to give you one fun scenario that I've thought through. And last week, we had some fun kind of going through all the possibilities of what these things could represent in the last days. Today, I want to kind of tie all that together and give one potential way this could take place. And um, there are others. I don't know that I'm fully convinced of this one, but I think it's an interesting way to look at it. The major possibilities for the identity of the Babylonian Empire is either a revived Rome or a revived Islamic caliphate. The, the last two great empires that dominated Israel and dominated Babylon, the, the region itself. So a very common thing that goes through my head is, all right, it seems very clear that there are Roman aspects to this empire, although that could just be John speaking in the terms of his day. But man, these guys, when they talk about that Islamic theory, they really have a lot going for them, and it's hard to shake that. Here's one scenario of how this might play out it's my attempt to kind of marry these two things together. And if it's not this, it'll be something like this. But I hope you'll indulge me and we'll have some fun here. Constantinople was the capital city of the Byzantine Empire from 476 to 1453. When Rome fell, we all know the story of the Visigoths coming and the barbarians sacked Rome and the empire collapsed and, and it was over. That is true. But the eastern side of the Roman Empire continued for about a thousand years. It was called the Byzantine Empire. And Constantinople, named after Emperor Constantine, whom we're familiar with, was the capital city. It was the new Rome, so to speak, for a long time. Until, in 1453, to the shock of the whole world, the Islamic Caliphate sacked Constantinople. They took it over. And now, they've renamed it Istanbul. The capital of Rome, Roman Christianity, what was left of Roman Christianity, was taken over by the Muslims. The famous Hagia Sophia Church has been taken over and become a mosque now. It's completely changed the name. And it was the capital of the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Turks were a group of Muslims that during the time of the Caliphate, which dominated a huge swath of the globe, the Turks were the group on top. And this was a point of resentment among the Islamic nations because hey, Islam is, is an Arabian thing. And here's all these guys from Turkey, that's why it's called Turkey, the Ottomans, the Turks, they're running things. The, the sultans of, of uh, Istanbul were the heads of the caliphate for 500 years until it fell in 1923. It's not, it's not that long ago that all of this changed, you guys. It's 100 years ago. 
Now, why is, why is this important? Well, if you read Ezekiel 38 and 39, the main nation that is going to lead this charge, the nation of Magog, or Magog, as it would have been described, by most Bible scholars is identified not to be the country of Turkey, but the city and the region would have been within what is modern-day Turkey. A lot of those areas, Meshach and Tubal, that are described there, that are leading figures in the Battle of Armageddon, are in Turkey, what we'd say modern-day Turkey. And that in those chapters, it says that those cities in that region will be absolutely crushed and destroyed during Armageddon. So here's what I'm going to throw out there is one option, just one option. Could this be an iron and clay marriage of the Roman and Islamic theories put together? I've not heard this. This is just my thought, my idea. Okay, so if we say, well, there's got to be this Roman aspect because you can't really get away from it. But then at the same time, I mean, Babylon, I mean, this is Babylon. This is not a European thing. This is Middle Eastern, right? And, and there's so many of these things that we look at that seem so compelling. What if we were to bring these two things together? Where you've got the ancient Islamic capital, which is also an ancient Roman capital, named after one of the greatest Roman emperors of all time, and that they together become what Babylon is. It would certainly explain why it says the Antichrist and the Ten Kings hated Babylon. If the caliphate is restored and Istanbul is restored to the place that it used to have, there's still going to be that simmering resentment that the Arabian Muslims have towards these Turks. And perhaps the Antichrist, if he were to take his place as the leader and as the ruler, Perhaps these folks up in Istanbul will be like, no, 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 we're not worshiping him. We're supposed to worship the Islamic way, you know, the, to serve Allah and follow the Quran. And then he might just have a point where he goes, you know what, I've just about had enough of you. And he crushes his own capital city. That could be one option. It's just a way of looking at it that there will come a point where this tension between the dictator and the capital city will reach a, a critical point where from Armageddon, the Antichrist will launch out and destroy it. I've also thought it might be interesting to consider as the demographic changes continue in Europe, as Islam is the fastest growing religion in Europe, the immigration continues to be overwhelming from Islamic countries over there. What might happen in 50 years, 100 years, 150 years? What, might what could happen to Rome itself? The actual city of Rome, could you have a situation like that? If Turkey is brought into the European Union, as it has been trying to do for a long time, and now you have this immense Islamic power there, plus all these people that are, have a historic loyalty to it, I don't know. It's just an interesting situation to look at. If you don't like it, that's fine. Just look at the scripture and, and you know, search it out for yourself. I believe we'll be raptured before that time happens, but it is, uh, it is good to be a diligent student of the scriptures. Whatever it will be, it is a climax of the tribulation where Babylon, the city, is destroyed by God's hand. But the tool in God's hand he will use is the beast himself. So can God do that? He absolutely can. He used Babylon to judge Jerusalem. So I'm pretty sure he can use Babylon to judge Babylon. Amen? All right, so I didn't get to discuss that last week, so I wanted to get into it with you. I think it's interesting to consider. Let's move on to verse 4. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning." 
Since in her heart she says, I sit as queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. So we have a second announcement from heaven, commanding God's people to flee from Babylon. And this also draws on language from the Old Testament. Jeremiah 51 has this statement two or three times. I'll just read from verse 6 of that chapter, where it says, Flee from the midst of Babylon. Let everyone save his life. Be not cut off in her punishment. For this is the time of the Lord's vengeance, the repayment he is rendering her. There will be those who believe during this time. There will also be Jews who, of course, fall into the category of God's people, who will be living or working in any way you want to look at it in the city of Babylon. And the Lord says, you got to go. Get out of there because judgment is coming and you do not want to be there when it comes. It's similar to how all the people of Israel were worshiping the golden calf. And Moses stands up and says, who is on the Lord's side? Let him come to me. It's a similar statement here. Is there anybody in Babylon that is still faithful? Get out of the city. Why? Why do they have to get out of the city? He says, lest you take part in her sins and reap the same judgment. It's not that God's like, I'm going to accidentally hit you if you're in there. You know, the Bible tells us God does not punish the righteous with the unrighteous. One of the reasons we believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. But he says, if you live in Babylon... You're in serious tempting zone, man. You're in serious trouble that that temptation might reach you and you'll partake in her sins. And if you partake in her sins, you're going to reap the same judgment, which he says is a double portion. Jeremiah 50, 29 talks about the double portion of the cup of wrath that is given to Babylon. Why does he emphasize this? Why does he, you got to get out of there. You'd think it was obvious, right? I think it was, well, I mean, if God judges wicked cities, and this is the Antichrist, it's going to be destroyed, right? I mean, especially if it's rebuilt Babylon. If it's, you know, it's called Babylon, I'm not living there, you know. Because it seems that Babylon is so arrogant in her economic might, she did not believe judgment could ever come upon her. Yeah, we're wicked. Yeah, we're evil. But we are so big and so important and so powerful and so rich it is in everybody else's best interest to keep us around. Too big to fail. This is a, another passage from the Old Testament that John's drawing on here. Isaiah 47, verses 8 and 9, speaking of Babylon. He says, Now therefore hear this, you lover of pleasures, who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am, and there's no one beside me. I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. These two things shall come to you in a moment, in one day. The loss of children and widowhood shall come upon you in full measure in spite of your many sorceries and the great power of your enchantments. So just like old Babylon never thought it could fall, so new Babylon will think the same way. And there will even be believers and Jews in the city who will doubt that the city could ever fall. So much so that they will need this call from God to get out of there. Do you remember Belshazzar on the night that Babylon actually fell? They're having a wild, raucous party. They're getting drunk out of the holy chalices from the temple in Jerusalem and praising the, the gods of gold and silver. God reaches in with his hand and writes on the wall. Remember the story? Mene, mene, tekel, ufarsin. And they all, if you read the story, remember this when we studied in Daniel? Belshazzar soiled himself. He was so scared when he saw that. 
Yeah, the older translations kind of like make that real nice and clean so that you can't see that. That's what the Hebrew means there. He panicked. Call in a magician to tell me what this means. None of them could figure it out. So who do they call? Daniel. Old man Daniel shows up. Hey, if you can tell me what this means, I'll, I'll make you the third in command of my, of my kingdom. And he goes, I don't want your kingdom, Belshazzar. And he, like, even before he starts to interpret it, he's giving him the business. It's awesome. He, says, he interprets it that the Medes and the Persians are going to destroy you. He says, Babylon has been weighed in the balance and found wanting. And it says they all mocked him and laughed at him. And that very, very night, Babylon fell. That's going to be the attitude of Babylon before it falls, even in its own day. <laughs> yeah, he thinks he's something. That Antichrist, whoever he is, he thinks he's big. He needs us. He, need, he can't get rid of us. We fund all his wars. We keep all of his allies in line. And if he doesn't like it, he's going to have to just deal with it. Oh, he marched on us with an army. You're not intimidating us until the day they finally fall. You've got to take this lesson to heart, my Christian friend. I know we're not living in the last seven years of, of history. We are living in the last days. And I have to ask you, are you living in Babylon? Are you living in such a way that will characterize the, the wicked city of the final days? Let me ask you this. Are you a citizen of this world or a sojourner in this world? Is this your home or are you just passing through? Do you like it here and you're setting up shop here? Or are you saying, come quickly, Lord Jesus? Have you noticed, I have, even in my, my short life so far, that the spiritual separation of the Christian is becoming less and less of a focus in the American church. The idea of being separate, not like everybody else, different, a little strange, worthy of being mocked. Instead of the world mocking us, now we're mocking ourselves for not being like the rest of the world. In the way that we speak, in the way that we dress, in the way that we interact online, the way that we spend money, it seems that Christians have very little that is distinctive about them. Now, you might respond to that and say, well, at least we're not like those, those crazy woke folks that believe there's you know, a million genders and you can have surgery on your kids and believe all this other wacky stuff. As I've said a million times, you don't get points for that, guys. You don't get extra credit because you believe in male and female. That's like way below the baseline of believing that. I'm not asking, are you part of a more conservative culture? I'm asking, are you distinct even within that group? I, I am a firm believer, and this is Martin Lloyd-Jones articulated this the best, I believe. He says, the Christian ought to be a point of frustration for the politicians because they are not easily swayed. That if you want the Christian to be on your team, you got to bend over backwards and do it the way that we believe. Because despite your best intentions, if you're living in the world the way everybody else is living in the world, the danger is you will take part in her sins. And you won't worry about anything happening to you because you'll think, well, this is just the way it is. Nothing we can do. We can't change it. Babylon is there. What are you going to do about it? You might as well get comfortable. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, 17, Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, and I will welcome you. And that next verse, he starts talking about the adoption that we have as children of God. We want to come in, we want to sing about, oh, I'm a child of God, isn't this wonderful? And then you go back out and you live like your father, the devil. Whose kid are you really? Well, I believe in Jesus. I've been baptized. That's wonderful. 
But I don't put my faith in rituals, and you shouldn't either. Are you walking with Jesus? Or are you like one of those folks that, oh, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Let me first go back and say goodbye. I'll follow you wherever we go as long as we've got a nice hotel, Jesus. Christian immaturity is to think that you can act just like the world and remain unchanged by it. It's immature. It's naive. You ever try to deal with one of your children, maybe? Or you remember when you were a child, you know, maybe becoming a teenager? And he's like, I don't want you going there. Why? I'm not going to do anything. I won't. Y yeah, sure you won't. Well, you don't trust me? You never trusted me, Mom, right? It's like, no, but I know what people are like. I know what I was like, and I know what, what happens at those things. You know, it's funny. I remember we were talking about this the other day at a, some of our friends that when I was growing up, you know, Christian music was really cool when I was growing up. I'm not talking about worship. I'm not it's like the Christian music scene. But there are a lot of times my dad and my, my uncle, who was a little more loud about it than my dad was, they're like, hey, man, that, that stuff is, is cool, but they say they're Christians, but it has nothing to do with Jesus. You know, it's just, it's just music with a Christian, you know, fish on it. And he's, and I don't, I don't know about those guys. And what is that song all about? It's like, the, every, why is every song questioning? Why is every song doubting? There's no, there's no statement of faith. There's no reconciliation. Dad, come on, you're so lame, right? Well, what happened? Turns out a lot of those guys come out later and say, yeah, we were faking the whole time. Or they come out and say, you know what? I've decided I don't believe in the Bible after all. And it's like, you know, I'm not saying that all of that was bad, but... As a child, thinking that I could just participate in all this stuff that my godly Christian pastor father was warning me about and thinking that it was all going to be all right, I'm lucky the Lord preserved me. I think it is significant that the last revival that America saw came to a group of people who had already determined we're not going to be like everybody else. It was the hippies in the Jesus movement. Why would God help them? Because they had already said, forget everything. We want to start fresh. And God goes, Awesome. You're already halfway there, friend. You've already left everything. Now follow me. But if you say, I want to follow him, but I don't want to lose everything, it's not going to work for you. Flee. Come out from Babylon and be separate. Verse 9. So that's, that's one reaction. Verse 9. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment, like don't get too close, and say, alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. Let me pause there. The word alas that's translated there in Greek is what's called onomatopoeia. You remember this from your English class? It's a word that's not really a real word. It's like bang. It's just supposed to be what the noise sounds like. It's the Greek word why. It's not supposed to be read like why. It's like why. It's a wail. It's a mourning for this city. They're weeping over her. Verse 11, the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, and sheep, horses, and chariots, and slaves, that is, human souls." The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. 
The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas for the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. For in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste. And all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all whose trade is on the sea, stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas for the great city, where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour she has been laid waste. There ought to be a paragraph break in my opinion there. Because it says, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Now you have the reaction of the nations who are going to weep and wail at the destruction of this city. But you can see that this is not really like unconditional love, is it? It is a self-serving lament. We lost our way to make money. We got so rich with Babylon. Now we'll never get that rich again. What am I going to do with all this ivory that I've got piled up? Who's going to buy it now? You don't really feel sorry for them. It's a rather pathetic picture, isn't it? The merchants can no longer ply their trade there. You can see how luxurious this city was. That it wasn't, they're not bringing in the necessary things. It's luxuries. Who needs scented wood for crying out loud? This city upon the waters, by the way, because it talks about the seafarers and the merchants and the sailors, some people have, have uh, pr tried to press the symbolism a little more literally and say, whatever city this is, it's got to be a port city of some kind. It's got to have access to the waters or this passage makes no sense. I think there's something to be said for that. Where is some of this language coming from? It's coming from Ezekiel 26, which is not a prophecy against Babylon. It's a prophecy against Tyre which was one of the Phoenician city-states north of Israel, great trade cities. It was the sister city of Sidon, where Jezebel came from. Speaking of Tyre, it says, Then all the princes of the sea will step down from their thrones and remove their robes and strip off their embroidered garments. They will clothe themselves with trembling. They will sit on the ground and tremble every moment and be appalled at you. And they will raise a lamentation over you and say to you, How you have perished, you who were inhabited from the seas, O city renowned, who was mighty on the sea. So can you see the parallel between these Old Testament and these New Testament passages? You're supposed to be making the connection. It's like every judgment that ever happened is coming to a head in this one moment on the ultimate city. Most of these goods, as I said, were luxury items, even slaves. Now, the ESV translate this where it says, uh, slaves, that is human souls in verse 13. That is, is added. It just continues in the list. It goes, it said, horses and chariots and slaves and souls. That's pretty much understood to be that, you know, you're selling a slave. You're not just selling cargo. You're selling a human person and you shouldn't do it. But there's also, perhaps some people have, have speculated that there's, a, there's witchcraft involved here. That they're, you know, selling your soul to this place. Which I don't know if that's true, but it, it certainly would preach well. <laughs> these nations, these merchants, these kings, they had committed sexual immorality. Remember, we're still using the metaphor, the picture of a prostitute, of a whore here. That they copulated with this prostitute in order to make money. They committed sexual immorality in order to participate in that financial bonanza that was Babylon. They say, well, I might not approve everything she does, but if you want to make money in this day and age, you've got to go through Babylon. So, 
If we have to, in order to buy or sell there, you got to get a mark and bow down and worship the beast. I'll do it, man, because there's money in it. Whatever your price is, these people found it. Babylon was willing to do this, to, to compel the whole world to commit spiritual immorality so that they can gain economically. In the last days, Babylon is not going to just dominate the world with the sword, but with gold and silver. The way they get people to do this is money. It's through money. This is what God was warning us about in the previous section. Why God's people have to come out of her. Because the temptation is simply too great. When you see what this whore is offering you, you're going to be tempted. So leave. People are corrupted to sin when they see some kind of advantage to be gained by it. Maybe you've had one of those conversations with your friends and you've been like, hey, how much money would it take for you to do this? Right? How much? I would never kill a man. Well, if somebody offered you a billion dollars, would you do it? And that's just a silly game that kids play to make each other feel bad, you know. But really, everybody's got a price, unfortunately. Which is why God tells you, don't mess with it. Leave. Don't play that game. When you see an advantage that sin will gain you, you're tempted to engage in the sexual immorality of spiritual infidelity. And the sin that he's specifically calling out here is materialism. That a desire for gain, for stuff, for money, for profit, for wealth, and for luxury is what drive people to do things like bow down and worship the devil. I would never. Well, a lot of people will. I'm going to give you two examples today of ways, obviously we're not living in the day where the Antichrist mark is being required of you to buy and sell. But I, I have two areas that I'm going to draw out that I think you see this, this temptation chain start to happen, where we engage in something in such a way that it leads us into this sin of materialism. We can, we can apply this to all kinds of different sins. But I want to talk about this one specifically, of, of being superficial and materialistic. And I, while both of, the, both of these things will apply to everybody in this room, as I was praying for this and studying for this, there seems to be one that affects women more and one that affects men more. But it arrives at the same place. So let's start with this one. Let, let's talk about social media for a second. And both of these things I'm going to discuss are not inherently sinful, just as commerce is not inherently sinful. But let's talk about social media. This is an especially difficult temptation, especially for women, especially for young women, leading to materialism. When you immerse yourself all day long in images and videos of beautiful people and fine things and excess and luxury and wonderful vacations and all this different stuff, you can start to feel inferior. You start to desire those things, to desire to be like those things. And it becomes a point of obsession for your life, that you're, you're constantly looking, what's next? What's next? What is she doing? What is he doing? What are they doing? And it leads you to becoming superficial because you're starting to judge things and evaluate things based on what it looks like. How much did it cost? Where did you get it from? What do they look like? It makes you judgmental because now you start to compare yourself to other people. And if you start to climb the ladder a little bit, now you're looking down on somebody else. It makes you self-centered. And the only thing that matters is how did I look in that picture, not how are, how are my family being treated by me. 
It's vanity. If you don't realize that social media is the gateway to vanity, you probably need to delete your social media. I'm not even telling you to do that. But why am I emphasizing this for the ladies? Well, first of all, because I've seen it in my own life, but also because statistics are showing us that young women, especially who are teenagers, who get on, involved on Instagram and these other apps, have a markedly and measurable increase in things like anxiety, depression, fear, eating disorders, all that kind of stuff. We're sitting there saying, what's wrong with this generation? Why are they so depressed, you guys? Because they spend their lives in a constant comparison game to somebody else. As if that's not hard enough when you're a kid, isn't it? And you train yourself and you train your mind. You're not, you don't even know how to look at people anymore. You just look at people through the, the lens, through the filter, through what you're seeing online. And it doesn't just have to be beauty, although it is that. And there is a horrifying trend of young women, even young Christian women, putting things out there on the internet that before we would have told our young men, turn away and don't look at that. And even our young ladies are engaging in this freely. It's a temptation for guys too, but I especially worry for you ladies when you're, you're constantly bombarded by this stuff to be led down the path towards vanity. That there's something to be gained through. Yeah, there is something to be gained. There is an advantage to having your, your social networks. I'm not even telling you to get rid of it. Let the Holy Spirit tell you that if you think it's what you've got to do. But you have to recognize that there can be a temptation that will draw you into that superficial, materialistic view of the world. Now let's look at the guys. Although, again, both of these things can apply to both places. Let's talk about business, gentlemen. This is the one that we hear more often. But business. you got to do business. That's life. Right? And the Bible says it's good. To get out there, work hard, earn your bread, go home and enjoy it with your wife and children. We engage every day in the pursuit of provision. But you know that you, if you were happy with what you made until you found out what the guy next door made. You were happy with the car you had until you rolled up at the stoplight and saw what the guy next door was driving. You were happy with the things you possessed until you were invited to a friend's house and you saw what they possessed. And so what do we got to do? I've got to find ways to get more. And I'm not even talking about striving to excel and do well, but the desire to be acquisitive and have more things, to sacrifice more and more of what is really valuable in order to possess more and more of things that have no eternal or spiritual value. Laying up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. We've seen this. You've all seen this. You become avaricious, where you're not just working and eager to get home to be with your family. You want to stay at the office another 10 hours, because that way I can earn a little more money, and that way I can finally get that thing. I can finally step up. I found out what, what's on his pay stub. I've got to meet that. We see these men. We become harried, where you're just always exhausted and irritable and short-tempered, because every minute of every day is spent thinking about how I'm going to get that next dollar. And you don't have to be rich to do this either, by the way. You can be broke and be dealing with this because you hate being broke and you hate everybody who's above you. So what am I going to do? I'm going to get out there and I'm going to hustle and neglect my family, neglect my kids because we're climbing this ladder. And you become proud because what happens? You start to accomplish these things and you become proud and you look down on those that don't have and the, the numbers in your, in your bank account and the kind of car you're driving, the kind of house you have makes you proud and arrogant. You ever want to frustrate a prideful person? Show them that you do not care about the things that they're proud about. That's why, I'm, oh, I tell you, this is why you see people that make an awful lot of money often have no time for Jesus. 
Because what did Jesus say? Jesus said in Luke 12, 15, one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Poor people say that. You heard that one? That's what poor people, that's what losers say that don't know how to climb and hustle and grind like I do. Yeah, you be happy with, with the little bit you've got. I could never be happy with that. That's why I get out every day and I make it happen, man. And yeah, I've lost my wife, but who cares? She, she wasn't good enough for me anyway. I'm going to get a better one. I'm going to get a more beautiful wife and climb that ladder higher. I'm going to get a bigger house and bigger stuff and then die of a heart attack at 55. And I'll tell you guys, that's greed. We talked about vanity a minute ago. We're talking about greed now. And I'm not sitting here looking down on anybody. I feel that tug too, you guys. I, I am a very type A kind of person. I like to get out and get it done. That's what I love. I like having, you know, I'm, I have this sort of weird to-do list addiction that I have where I can't even throw them away. Like Catelyn knows, I had my to-do list from five years ago. What do I need them for? I don't know. Maybe I'll write an autobiography someday. <laughs> on this day, I met with, with James for lunch at cookout, and it was great. You know, I don't know why I do that. But I, if I do not watch myself, I can start to feel that pull to do more, to get more, to have more, to show up at the pastor's conferences. How many of you got going to your church now, man? Ooh, what's your budget look like? Hey, what, how many things have you? And it's, it's this weird comparison game. And I know how that feels. I know how it feels to, you know, to stand and say, Lord, you've, you've called me to be a pastor and I love it, but God, why did you have to say that you know, pastors have to set an example through frugality and, and through you know, being responsible? Why can't I get out there and, and hustle and ball out a little bit every once in a while? And it's, I don't like that about myself, but it's in there. It's in there in all of us. Whether it's vanity through social media, whether it's greed through business, apply it wherever you want to apply it. When we start engaging in the economy of sin for some kind of advantage we think we'll gain from it. If you do not be on your guard, as Luke 12, 15 tells us, where he says, be on guard against all covetousness, you will find yourself having a stake in the continuation of the Babylonian system where you don't want the system to collapse because if it falls, that means you're going to lose out. Is that a dangerous place to be or what? Yes, it's terrible that these young ladies are getting captured and being, getting their minds warped by these, these social networks. But if that were to all suddenly fall apart tomorrow, well, I might lose out on some business and lose some money. So I kind of need it to keep going. And I also kind of like enjoying it myself a little bit. So I, I really want it to keep going. Yes, you're right. The world is full of corruption and greed. And, but, you know, uh, my corruption and greed has made me rather wealthy. So I really don't want it to fall apart. You have a stake in the continuation of wickedness. Apply this to church and the way we do church today. Apply this to the way we date and get married. Apply this to politics or how we raise our children or what kind of entertainment we engage in. Our response, as it says in verse 20, is to rejoice over her fall. That when Babylon collapses, we say, hallelujah, Jesus, it's over. Because no longer can she draw people away from the true and living God in all his ways. So whether or not one of those examples applied to you, friend, which, which is it? What is tempting you? What is drawing you down the way towards that materialistic vanity, greed, whatever it is? Verse 21, come to the end of the chapter. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea. So picture that, all right? Giant stone chucked into the middle of the ocean. Kabloosh! So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence 
and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of the lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. So another angel lifts this huge boulder, probably an impressive sight, I would imagine, and hurls it into the ocean, which is another reference back to the Old Testament, actually. Jeremiah 50 and 51 is a long prophecy about the fall of Babylon. And when you come to the end of it in Jeremiah 51, verses 63 and 64, Jeremiah hands the scroll to a guy to deliver it to the Jews living in Babylon. And he says, when you finish reading this book, tie a stone to it, cast it into the midst of the Euphrates, and say, thus shall Babylon sink to rise no more because of the disaster that I'm bringing upon her, and they shall become exhausted. So can you see how this is, everything is an intensification of what's happened before. Total destruction will come upon Babylon. No more music, no more work, no more celebration, because like a whore, like a harlot, a prostitute. She led the rest of the world to sin and butchered the saints. Revelation has been a rather dark book at times. But you've got to remember, all of this is going to end with a bang. The Lord is not going to allow Satan to ravage the planet unchecked for longer than a few short years. You've got to remember that. Sometimes people say, oh, I really love prophecy. And what they really love to do is walk around like Eeyore, all doom and gloom because of what the evil globalists are going to do. That's, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says to rejoice because it's all going to burn. The lesson for today is for us to think God's way about Babylon. Even as it exists now, even as you see the foreshadowings of it in small ways leading up to the future, think about it God's way. What do you call it? Let's call it this. Anything that seduces you to sin because of some advantage you gain from it is Babylon in your life. Anything that is not maybe on its own a sin, but the more you engage it in it, the more you are tempted to sin. You've got to learn to think about everything in your life the way God thinks about it, not the way the world thinks about it. Can I give you an example? Just one example? That is uh, rather ironic how the Lord has gone about this. A couple, you know, decades ago, uh, remember the advertisements, especially during like football games, were in, in cl- incredibly salacious. And like you, you'd have all of these really immodestly dressed women, very sexual, very like, you know, you're trying to sell beer, but, you know, what are you really trying to sell, you know? And I remember that was a problem. Like in my house, like you had like the, the hunting channel uh, like backwards so you can go back and get away from the commercials and come back. And this is, the church talked about this, the immodesty on TV, it's got to end. There's, you know, there's all this stuff that our children shouldn't be seeing. You know how God brought a stop to that? You might not like the answer. Wokeness. Getting rid of the male gaze on TV. But, you know, here, here's the point I'm trying to make, though. I, don't have no, I am not a big fan of that movement either. However, what has happened is you have found some who claim to be Christians have somehow pivoted and are starting, we've got to get that back because that's male and female. And you're, you're minimizing, you know, the, the normal, healthy relationship between men and women. I'm like, well, hold on a second. We can't go back to that either. 
What are you doing? You're thinking according to your times, not according to the scripture. Romans 12, 2 says, do not be conformed to this world. Don't be like them, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Y'all, vanity, greed, ambition, these are not Christian virtues. Stamp out the things that stimulate them in you. What makes you vain? What makes you care more about how you look and how you appear to other people more than anything else? Get rid of that. What makes you greedy? What makes you desire to have and own and possess? And that's not just a male thing either. There are plenty of men that I know who would rather be home and rather stop and rather take it easy, but there's a woman back home. Push them. I need more. You've got to go home and get more for us. What causes you to be greedy? Get rid of that. What causes you to have vainglory, selfish ambition, desiring to climb and shine in the sun like some, some Greek god or something like that? Whatever that is, kill that. Stop reading those books. Stop watching those shows. Stop listening to those influencers. Who are you trying to be like and look like and talk like and sound like and think like? If it ain't Jesus, get on your knees and repent. Stamp out what stimulates sin in you. I end with this, this illustration from Scripture. When the angels came to lead Lot out of Sodom, his wife was turned into a pillar of salt as she turned back to gaze longingly as, at the city as it was destroyed. It's Genesis 19.26. Hailstones, fire, and brimstone coming down from heaven, destroying the city of Sodom. And she turns back to look, not because she wanted to see the fire, but the implication is because she was devastated that her city had been destroyed. And she was turned into a pillar of salt. She was struck by some of that stone and was set, set up there as a memorial for everybody to see. You may despise the sins of Sodom, but do you love the trappings that come from living there? I would never engage in that sin, but you know, we are doing pretty well here. If God were to come and destroy Sodom, would you say true and righteous are you judgments, O Lord? Or would you think to yourself, how could God do something like this and take all that away from me? It is time for us to come out and be separate, to stand apart and endure the shame that will follow. Because when Babylon falls, those who have shared in its sins will also share in its destruction. 